today's episode, I sit down with Philip Shaw, a farmer from Dresden, Ontario. And if you're on the Twitter machine, you will know him by the handle at Agridome. When Phil was gracious enough to come by my office at the University of Guelph campus, I remember the hour going by really fast and just enjoying our conversation. And like a lot of conversations that Phil has on Twitter, well, there were some things I didn't necessarily agree with. But when I went back to edit it, I didn't really edit much. I left it pretty raw because Phil's an interesting guy. And sure, he sometimes annoys the agronomists on Twitter, but he truly is always looking through his farming practices through an agricultural economic lens. So approaching farming and crop production through any other lens just doesn't make sense to Phil. So if you don't necessarily agree with that, you most certainly have to respect where he's coming from and his approach, and I certainly do. So before we get into the episode, if you head on over to fieldcropnews.com and click on podcasts, that will take you to the show notes for this episode because we talk about many different resources that are available to stay on top of grain markets. And you can also check out Phil's work there. Again, fieldcropnews.com podcasts. Now, here's my conversation with Philip Shaw. So you farm in Dresden, which is what, north of Ridgetown? I farm near Dresden, Ontario. I farm both north of Dresden and south of Dresden. It's about it's about 10 miles north of Chatham, or about 40 miles or 60 kilometers southeast of Sarnia in Chatham, Kent. And roughly 900 acres? No, well, you know, roughly, I guess. I, I farm about 800. I farm about 865 acres. <laughs> okay, so more specifically, 865 acres, corn, soy, wheat? What? Eight, 865 acres of corn, soybeans, and wheat. And I've done that, you know, all my life, and I'm 57 years old now, so time marches on. Uh, ever grown anything other than, than I those I grew things? some sweet corn. Yeah. I've, I've sold fresh market sweet corn. And in the early days, we're going down memory lane a little bit, but I grew oats, believe it or not. And there was a thriving oat market in Ontario at one time. Now, I know all I do is talk about markets now, but it's almost hard to believe that was there. But I did grow oats. For what? For what use? I grew them for certified seed at the time. Okay. And there was quite a big market for it. And we're talking back in the 80s. And, it was, and not only was it, was it a good market, I mean, it was better than almost anything else I grew at the time. And what happened to that market? Well, it simply got overtaken by uh, the advance of corn production in Ontario. Uh, those, uh, those people uh, that, demanded, that demanded oats or grew oats from the seed that I grew started growing corn and soybeans, for that matter. And then Western Oats came from Western Canada and took over any particular market that we had here for, for oat usage at the time. And we're going down memory lane quite a ways. And, uh, you know, Western Oats always had a brighter color than ours because we had too much rain. But at the time, at the time, I remember very clearly back in the 1970s and the 1980s, early 80s, getting 110 bushel oats in the deep southwest of Ontario and selling them for $3 a bushel. It's a pretty good uh, coin. It was working out okay, but that's down memory lane. Like, that's back in the Stone Age now, you know. So, I mean, uh, but that's, uh, you know, in the early days, I did do that. Was that, it must have been primarily for feed then? No, it was for seed production. No, time. like what you were growing is primarily for seed production, yeah, but yeah. but ultimately grown for... Yeah, it was grown for feed in the rest of uh, Ontario. The market was, uh, all, the, all those oats left... Uh, the deep southwest, and came up here north of Guelph and Kitchener area, and they were sold and distributed throughout the area. But you never grew tomatoes? I never grew tomatoes. Of course, I, I grow everything around them, and 
and uh, whether it's tomatoes or sugar beets or seed corn or anything like that, that's all grown in the Dresden area. And I've had to spray things like dicamba and things around them for forever, and I still do that. So what was the rationale for never getting into tomatoes, even though you're surrounded well, by Well, you know, that's a good question. You have to. I actually wrote a long article about that once from Country Guide. It's a great thing to be into, but you just can't do it. Right. right. It's a contract crop. Right. So the question is, how do you get into growing tomatoes? Well, that's a good question. Nobody really wants to answer that. It's related to a lot of things in, in, in Dresden and in Leamington and places like that. Uh, historic families in the area have those contracts, and it's you know I just can't walk in and get one. Fair enough. Uh, it's not tomato, tomatoes. is not like growing corn and soybeans. You yeah. only grow so many tomatoes to satisfy a particular market that the processor knows that he has. So typically in the Dresden area and the Leamington area, um, you know the uh, growers will have tonnage that they produce, but generally they reach that. Mm-hmm. And then it's a game of cat and mouse whether they can get rid of the rest of, of their tomatoes. Right. And I have seen lots of tomatoes disked, disked under. Yeah. You know, 50 acres of tomatoes disked under in Dresden or in Leamington or in Chatham. It happens. Sure. And it makes people cry. But that's life on the trail. You know, that's the tomato market is just totally, it's very ro- robust and dynamic in Canada right now, partly because of the 72 cent dollar. But, uh, it's always been that way, and it, it's so different than commodities. So tons of things to follow up. I, w- I still want to go way back because you're talking 70s, 80s. You are a graduate of this institution, early 80s? Well, I graduated a couple times. I uh, graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Agricultural Economics in 1981, mm-hmm. and then I went back and farmed for five years. I came back, enrolled in a Master of Science in Agricultural Economics and Business, and I graduated again from this hallowed institution in 1989 with a master's degree in agricultural economics. So young Philip Shaw in high school in Dresden around the 70s, let's shall we say, um, why, why study agriculture? Uh, was the vision always to come to farm, or, or what was the plan? Believe it or not, the vision was to farm. Uh, remember, this was the 1970s. I'm from the deep southwest of Ontario. Land was $5,000 an acre in 1978 then. And, and um, you know, our yields were tremendous at that time. At that time, we were completely different than the rest of the province. And I wanted to be part of that. And But I didn't want to really come to the University of Guelph. I, I thought I wanted to go to the university, but taking crop science... Or something like that. Like to me, how the crop grows, and I guess I still feel the same way today. I'll just ask somebody. To me, it's about management, and it's about it's about it's about the money because I didn't have any at the time, and uh, I wanted to get there. So I asked my father, and I remember very clearly what he said because I just told him that, and he said, "Well, why don't you look into agricultural economics?" And my father had a grade A education. But but that's that's because of the times, not because the man didn't have the capability of doing many things. Mm-hmm. And so when he said that, I thought, my gosh. So what did you do back in 1976 or 1977 when you wanted to find out more about that? You didn't get online and Google it. You wrote a letter. 
So I wrote a letter to the University of Guelph. I think there might have been a, you know, maybe they came come around to the high school. I don't really remember that though. Or they came to, I think they came to Chatham at the time, maybe. Sure. And I wrote a letter, and the OAC at the time sent me back a booklet of their academic programs. I turned to the agricultural economic uh, page. I read it, and I felt that that's what I wanted to do. Now. So I got here in 1977. My first economic exams, I got 20. I got 20 on my first economics exam. 20 out of 100. And I thought, my gosh. I said, this is not what I was thinking. Then I looked beside me, and my friend was laughing. I said, what are you laughing about? He said, I got 18. (laughs) And long story short, the average uh, mark for that that exam was 18%. Oh, wow. And long story short, the professor was from the U.K., and, and uh, he, um, for whatever reason, he realized maybe there was some type of an issue, and, and he was a good professor after that, and, and we got going, and, and I passed the course, and, and uh, after that, I, I really enjoyed it. At that time, there was some mind-numbing academics to go through, because even though I wanted to take agricultural economics and management and things like that. At the time, they made you take chemistry and zoology and botany and all this stuff that, in my mind, had nothing to do with agricultural economics, but you had to take it anyway. Mm -hmm. You don't now. No. But you did then. And so when I went to do a master's degree, you had to have high enough marks to get in. Well, I had to compete against people that didn't have to take zoology and chemistry and all those things. It's always something I thought about. So anyway, a young Phil Shaw, you know, back in those days, I wrote a letter, found out more about it, and every time I had a question, I'd write another letter. And that's hard to believe, but that's the way it was back mm-hmm. in back in those days. So then you graduate, you go back to the farm, you farm for five years. What what was the precursor to say, let's do graduate work? Because you typically don't do graduate work unless you have... Like historically, most people that do graduate work aren't looking to go back to the farm. That's changed a bit now, but by and large, we all went to grad school because we had other visions. What was yours at that time? Well, at that at that time, um, it had to do with my personal life. I I graduated here out of nineteen in nineteen eighty one. I immediately, immediately immediately got married to somebody that I knew here, knew here, but it did not work out. And after uh, after about two and a half years. Um, we separated, and then um, you know I was wondering what to do with life because because um, uh, living in Dresden by myself wasn't uh, wasn't the greatest thing for a young person. But I wanted to I wanted to do more. Like I, I could see maybe this gave me an opportunity to do something else. So I decided, well, why don't I try a master's degree in agricultural economics? I knew some of the professors because I hadn't been out that long. I had a few ideas, and so I applied. And my idea at the time was is that if I applied and I was accepted, I would go. And so I remember very clearly I applied, and I, I had to come up here, and I think I got letters of recommendations from some of the professors, and I was accepted. And, uh, and uh, I never, ever thought I was... Um, I still think this to this day. I'm not that smart. I just work hard. And it, it's just, I, I felt the same way back then. In terms of me as a, as a graduate student, never really thought much about me being a student. Didn't really know if I could do the academics. My marks were high enough to get in, but, 
um, you know, I was always getting pounded out by those sciences uh, along the way. And, uh, but I got accepted. So I remember very clearly, very clearly, leaving Dresden and driving up here in 19, it was uh, the first few days of January in 1986, and finding a place to live and uh, walking to uh, uh, the Agricultural Economics Building. And I remember I picked eight courses. And uh, somebody said, why are you picking eight? You're in graduate school. You only take three or two or whatever it was, and, uh, or four. I can't remember what it was. And I, you know, that's how green I was. But a long story short is, is that I enrolled in three courses, did incredibly well, got very high marks, and, uh, and really found my niche. At the time, it was a very unique place for me because I was a farmer in graduate school in agricultural economics. So um, I met so many people uh, there from foreign countries at the time. And, you know, they were from foreign countries. They were trying to take agricultural economics. And, and here, was, here was this guy from Dresden that talked about farming. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and so that was great because I developed many relationships from people around the world. One of them is my good friend. We did our master's degree together, Dr. Enamel Hawk. He's now a Ph.D. Uh, he did his Ph.D. here at Guelph, went back, and he's a professor of economics. And I've been there five times in the last 20 years to visit him. Three of those times I've lectured on agricultural economics at his university. And where is this university? That's in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Okay. He's right now at East West University in Dhaka. I've lectured at United International University there um, um, three times. And uh, so that's how, that's how I got in, into grad school, but it was based on uh, probably at the time was a personal tragedy of mine. Um, but those things happened, and that's uh, a long, long time ago. So then when you finished grad school, you head back to the farm. What was the reason for that? Well, I, uh, while I was in grad school, see, I never stopped farming. I just kept farming. Okay. So I would come in the January semester to do my coursework, and then I was writing a thesis. Right. So that worked. Mm-hmm. And they always knew once April 12th hit or something, I was done. Mm-hmm. And I would go back and I'd put nitrogen on wheat. You know the how you know the old drill. I would be farming. And at that time, I was farming with my late father. Mm-hmm. Um, and I bought farms, too, while I was here. Like, people were, these students were just kind of uh, beside themselves. Because I, I bought farms while I was in grad school. And, you know, the banks weren't very kind then. No. Right? I had just gone through the 80s with 20% interest rates. And so this was, at this point, it was the late 80s. So things were getting better. We were down to 12%, 14% by that time. And, uh, you know, so I, I, uh, I bought farms while I was here and bought machinery and did all kinds of things managing that. And, but I did my graduate work, too. And, uh, but when I got out, uh, it just continued. And I think I bought another one after I got out of grad school. In fact, the farm I bought when I got out of grad school was cheaper than the one I bought eight years previous. That happened in Ontario. We had a 25% decrease in land prices during that period. Now, when you talk about that now, people think you're on drugs. But that actually happened to me. Okay? That actually happened to me. And, uh, and that 20% interest rate thing and the land price decrease, that has stayed with me till this day. 
and I certainly remember my dad talking about that time, is because, correct me if I'm wrong, the 70s were kind of like the mid to late 70s were kind of a, a good good time, good period, and then the early 80s, as you mentioned, you know, devalued land prices, high interest rates. So in hindsight, how did you survive that? Because many people didn't. That was an ugly time for a lot. Yeah, the way, the way, the reason I got through it was simply timing. I didn't have enough money borrowed. Um, the big problem was, if you had started three years previous, is that banks were lending money on land that was inflated compared to values in the past. And um, then uh, we had much lower commodity prices, but we had a huge spike in interest rates. So you had the specter of 20% interest rates in 1981. My first demand loan was 23 and a quarter percent. My gosh. And, and, and then you had very, very low prices. So banks had extended loans on equity, on capital for land that was gone. And uh, we can draw a comparison today. Is that same type of thing going on? We could talk about that later. But that's what happened at that time. So for me, I didn't have enough borrowed. And, and, but still, um, it was a, a very difficult thing because I didn't have the capital availability. Nobody did. Right. Nobody did. I was not alone. And so what that did, what that did over a period of time, like when I got out of grad school, well, it wasn't even out of grad school. It was out of grad school. Even, even maybe 10 years ago, it was still like this, where it seemed like it was always very difficult to um, get capital unless you gave so much equity away. But that was at a point where we were losing equity back in those days. And the reason that I got through it, because I simply didn't have enough money, money borrowed to get through it, but I made those payments. And like I say, when it got down to 12 and 14 percent, we thought we were winning. Sure. Well, compared to today, my gosh, you know. Yeah. So you, on the surface, you could say in many respects, things are similar now to what you just described at that time, right? We've just come out of, of good prices. The only difference really is interest rates, That's right? That's the big one. And so could we ever find ourselves in a similar position or not really? Well, uh, you know, the way I answer that question is this, and I pose this when I speak in public now. Just because it happened to me doesn't mean it will happen again. Right. You are looking at somebody that is captive to that. Ever since those days, I've been wondering about it happening again. I have missed economic opportunities because of that. Mm. My goodness, what are interest rates now? My gosh, you know, you should go, you know, go buy a yacht or something. Well, sure. You know, that's crazy. But, I mean, go buy another farm or, you know, that's why I, I spoke about land prices across Ontario because uh, the low interest rates have infused capital to put in anything, anything tangible. And land has been part of that. So, but to answer your question is, is that that's the one facet that's missing is super high interest rates. I mean, you can't even imagine that. So whether we'll, you know, never is a long time, but the way I answer that is it may never happen again. I suppose if you have enough money borrowed and you had a marginal increase in interest rates, that could be problematic. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I guess the answer somewhat is the same answer was 
in your day in the back in the eighties. You didn't have that much money borrowed, mm-hmm. so you were an okay. You could ride that wave. Yeah, um, I think the other difference from today, though, Mike, is is that capital availability today is easier. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, then it wasn't. I mean, there was lots of you know, it was just rougher than heck getting money from anywhere. Sure. And now it's not. No. And especially, uh, it just isn't anymore. And even last last year before the finance minister at that time, Mr. Flaherty, before he passed away, that administration was trying to limit Canadians' debt. So they raised the requirement for CMHC to to because he was worried about Canadians borrowing too much. You know, and from a finance perspective, that's a problem for him with housing markets in Vancouver or Toronto. So even the government's worried a little bit about Canadians borrowing too much. But that wasn't a problem back in the day with me because we didn't have that choice. Right. And, and you, know, you know, if you got the money, then the big problem was finding out how to get over that 14% or that 22% or whatever it is now. But as you know now, we have interest-only loans. Fair enough. And and so so so, you know the realities are somewhat different, and I'm not prepared to say it will happen again. There'll be something different happen this time. So let's talk uh, crop prices, and I don't want to get into. I should rephrase that. I don't really want to get into crop price because uh, it's it's a question that to me is is one not easily answered. I'm, I always love it when crop science guys talk about markets and prices. Well, I'm fascinated because I know <laughs> very little about marketing, right? I know very little about economics, which is, I, this is how much I know. I make sure I know exactly what it costs me to grow a bushel of corn, soybeans, wheat, and I make sure that I'm, I'm not taking a haircut when I sell it, basically, right? So for me, the mechanism, just because it's probably been easiest for my brain, is just simply forward contracts and at points in the season when I think it's at a decent price and and let the chips fall where they may. I'm not convinced that's a good way, Phil. So kind of walk me through, you know, how do you approach marketing a crop? Well, the way I approach it is... is um with regard to a marketing plan, complexity can be the enemy of transparency. And a good marketing plan, to me, is not very complex, okay? Because when you make a marketing plan complex, then you make it much, much more difficult. Now, having said that, um, there are a myriad of tools that you can employ to spread your your risk around with regard to crop prices uh, and to that like. Um, But for me, I try to keep it simple, okay? Now, I was in a seminar yesterday about options and derivatives and all kinds of things like that. Very interesting calculus, that's for sure. Um, But for me, typically, I will forward contract some of my crop. and, for instance, I used to store a lot of it, but I don't anymore. Um, and that's partly a farm safety um, um, equation. Because believe it or not, if you have, the way I look at it is if, if let's say, I have some bins and I have filled them up before, but I dig them out by myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know how to do that, but I'm not getting any younger. And so when does it come that I might make a mistake someday? And I'm all by myself. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
So part of the reason I don't store grain anymore on the farm is because uh, it's a farm safety issue. I'm all by myself. The other reason is is because you can use forward contracts. You could choose to use options if you want to. I think that that makes your marketing decision complex, but there are different uh, different marketing tools you can can employ to avoid the bin, and that's what I try to do is avoid the bin. Where I am in the deep southwest of Ontario, we have a very mature market and, and, um, and great price transparency. So it's actually got to the point now where there's almost better marketing opportunities if you don't have them, uh, simply because there's more competition for your grain. But I recognize in many other parts of Ontario as well as Quebec and places like that that grain bins do serve a function for local markets. Eastern Ontario is a very good example where they have a, a fairly mature feed market and things of that nature, and lots of farmers will sell right out of the bin. Don't have that where I'm from. You don't have that where I'm from. Um, you know, manure is something that it's just a theory to me. My ground's never seen it. In fact, I've never seen any. You know, I've often made the comment on Twitter, dairy farms, I've never even seen one in Chatham County, right? No, that would be And good. it's just so foreign to me. But when you talk to people, uh, you know, they talk about it's different. But with marketing, like, I think you, I think you need to embrace, uh, and, and, you know, you should. I often talk about daily market intelligence. And back in the day, you'd phone the guy at the radio station to find out what the price is. To me, uh, I find that Twitter is indispensable with regard to market intelligence, and you need to look at it at a daily basis. And with regard to what you do, I don't really have a problem with that. That sounds fine to me, but I think you need to understand uh, how basis works. And the, to me, the cash markets in Ontario, especially for corn, have some particular characteristics that happen historically. And we need to know those things. I think you should immerse yourself in those ideas. Part of the problem is there's no textbook about that. And when I was first asked to take over writing Brian Doidge's column for, at that time, the corn producers, and now I write market trends for the grain farmers of Ontario, I had to find that out, how cash markets work, especially for corn in Ontario. And the problem was is that the, the end users didn't want you to know. And, you know, a few years ago, there was basically only about two buyers in Ontario. Now you could fit all the end users in a bus, a minivan. What we'd like to do is fit them in a bigger bus. Um, but you need, I think you need to immerse yourself in, in the cash market and try to understand it and, and know how basis works. As far as futures, I think that's a lot, a lot easier to handle. So... I, there's a few things I want to follow up there. So I'm, I'm kind of getting from you that forward contracting that I'm doing is not a bad thing, no, right? I mean, that's effectively what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so then around that idea of the cash market uh, knowing basis, what are the – like I guess I look at basis now because we have a low Canadian dollar basis mm-hmm. is quite quite high. Mm-hmm. And then when the dollar is close to par, the basis is not. Mm-hmm. Um, so – are these moments and times where we should be looking at basis contracts? Or well, the, the, the way I answer that question is like I answer them all when somebody asks me, like, I, I don't have a clue. Okay. I don't, I don't know. What, what you have to do is measure where you're comfortable. Okay. Okay, you have to measure where you're comfortable. But the, the basis calculation with regard to 
with regard to what was happening this fall was completely obvious. I've said for three years now, and I'm going to be speaking in Ridgetown, Woodstock tomorrow, right. I'm going to say the same thing. The whole story, the whole story in pricing Ontario cash, Ontario grain for the last three years has been the Canadian dollar. Mm-hmm. Futures have been in a steep decline for about, well, they, they fell from 2013 for about a year, but since then they've been sideways. But the dollar, I've got a chart I'm going to put up tomorrow, from 2013 has fallen from par. It got down to 68 cents on January 20th. You went from a negative basis of 50 cents on soybeans to plus $3 on January 20th. Now, I'm not a rocket science, but scientist, but even I can figure out that that's real money. Okay, So you have to understand that. You have to know how it works. Now, the Canadian dollar is extremely significant for soybeans and wheat, but not so much for corn. And depending on where you live in Ontario, whether you live in Dresden or Guelph or Manatec or Morrisburg, it works differently. And you need to be aware of those things. So in, in essence... What are you, or is what you're saying, Phil, that, like, to me when I hear that, I start to think, is the is context not important? Like, so is there a way, like, to me, whether we're sitting in a good market or not, from a price perspective, all goes back to context. You know, how many times over the last five years have I been at this price? Um, are there ways to find that information? Are there good sources to look back? Because to me, you know, you tend, I get, so I'm a simple guy, right? I focus mainly on weeds. I, uh, so I don't spend too much calories burn fill on this. And so I'm kind of always looking for a simple, simple way. And I guess to me, what would the, you mentioned that information is you can get it the pricing all the time now on Twitter and everything as opposed to back in the day. So to me, I find we focus too much on the daily price, whereas I'd like to look back and say, okay, where is this price relative to where it's been the last year, two years, five years? Um, what's your go-to place to find that information? The, un- the, the unequivocal source for Ontario cash grain pricing is farm market news. Okay. And you can find that at the Grain Farmers of Ontario website. And it is the source for Ontario cash prices. They measure cash prices every day. Mm -hmm. And you can go to their sheet, and I'm just looking for it here, but you can go to their, on their website and uh, at the Grain Farmers of Ontario, and they will list every cash price from Dresden to Chatham to Guelph to London to Morrisburg to uh, Trenton to uh, Kingston to Niagara to everywhere, and they list it every day. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the cash basis values on that, they're different, and they're different based on regional variations. And and uh, that's called, in my mind, true price transparency. True price transparency, and we have that in southwestern Ontario. We've had it where I have all my life. Now, it hasn't always been true in eastern Ontario. For instance, an eastern Ontario farmer would tell me, you guys look out your window in the great southwest and you see about five people you can sell corn to. We look out, and now we see one, but we never used to see any. And, <laughs> and that's been, that is still a big problem for farmers, not necessarily in Ontario. But when I speak in Quebec... Quebec's a good place, and New Brunswick, anywhere in the Maritimes. 
what is the price of soybeans? What is the price of corn? Like you made, you made mention that you figure out your costs and you forward contract your crop, and you're good with that. Well, that's good. But how do you know that price that you forward contracted is real? How do you know the guy down the road isn't a dollar higher? Well, you know because you're in Ontario and there's listed and you can see, but the rest of Canada, it's not quite like that. It's certainly not like that in Quebec, and it's certainly not like that in New Brunswick. The reason in New Brunswick is the market is too small. And so, you know, that's called transparency. Are these prices real? And they are here in Ontario. Well, what I get the biggest kick out of is out west in western Canada. They were falling all over themselves to get rid of the Canadian wheat board. And that's a western issue. In Ontario, we didn't have too many. uh, It didn't really matter what we thought about it at all. So they got rid of the Canadian wheat board, and that's fine. It's a western issue. But then they have to price grain like we sell corn or beans. And, of course, no end users out there. i got to ship it up by rail somewhere. Well, how do you know the price is the price? You know, because there's no, there is now. It's just been started up by the Alberta government. They've run the same type of farm market news out in Alberta to give transparency on prices. But otherwise, they don't know whether the price is fair or not. At least here you do. You can look at the, all the prices and you can understand why it is what it is. That's a big deal. I never used to understand that, but I, I do now. So we're pretty lucky in this marketplace for corn, soy, and wheat to, to be able to look and, and for the most part and see what the, the fair price is. That's what, I, that's what I've always said. If you have ever noticed me on Twitter, like I've always said, in Ontario we have excellent price transparency. But they don't in Western Canada. They certainly don't in Quebec. And they're getting better in Quebec. But in the Maritimes, they, they don't at all. So I know this is definitely falls in, in the what your comfort level is. Um, and that's going to vary for people, um, for everyone. But for you, how much are you willing to forward contract? Like, what are you, what's your comfort level? Do you do 60%, 70%? Typically, typically I don't forward contract... Um, well, I shouldn't say that. I suppose with corn last year, I was going into harvest. I suppose I was uh, probably seventy-five uh, percent contracted, but that doesn't mean much to okay. me. It doesn't mean much what Phil Shaw does. Oh, I realize Be- that because I don't know any more than anybody else. All I do is try to Im- Im- immerse myself in the market factors. It just so happens that that I write about it all the time for different publications, the Grain Farmers of Ontario, and, and I have a tremendous interest in it. But, like, remember, I don't store anything on the farm. Why right? not? Yeah. For, for reasons that are what they are. And so I like to forward contract a lot or hedge even a basis contract. I've done that before uh, to take care of the crop because I'm avoiding the bin, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to avoid the um, elevator charges as well. Even though I think elevator charges are just fine to pay some, you know, uh, if, if you so if you so choose that, because those bins and drying systems farmers bought, believe it or not, they cost a lot of money. Not only not only when they build them, but the annual fixed cost over a period of time is huge. So there are you know just because the bin shines in the autumn sun doesn't mean it should be filled. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm in a similar boat as you. I don't mind paying uh, the the elevator fee because, quite frankly, whenever I store it at home, there's always that sinking in your stomach yep. when you open yep. up the door and a big wad of moldy soybeans yep. comes out. And, yep. you know, it, it takes management to keep that crop yeah. good. Now, at the same time, you and, and myself, for instance, are in a part of the country where, you know, there's quite a mature market. Yeah. Some people in Renfro County or eastern Ontario... They don't have the choices we do. No. Build a system so they can take care of them themselves. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Are there times of the year you avoid uh, selling? Like, so, uh, and again, this might sound like a dumb question, but I'll ask it anyway. USDA, USDA reports, when do they come out? How frequently? So I'll ask, like, is it consistently every year? Like, is it four times a year? No. No, no it's, it's what, I, what I do is... Um, USDA reports come out every month. Okay. Okay. But the big ones are March 30th, June 30th, and the 1st January report. It's usually around the 12th of January. The reason the January report is huge is because it 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 is the final report. Mm-hmm. And the final report, up until the last few years... There would be tremendous volatility on report day. Now, in the last two years, that hasn't been the case. So the first two weeks in January, the USDA report is extremely important. March 30th is important because the USDA gives its prospective plantings report that day. They're kind of like a, a shotgun going off where they say how many acres are going to be planted in the U.S. And the market feeds on that. And June 30th is the other real big one because that's the actual planted acres that the USDA says is there. Usually you get a lot of market volatility right around those days, even though the last couple of years have been a little bit different. And I think that's partly because of the computer algorithms that do all the trading now. Mm-hmm. They don't get emotional like we do. So, so you know, and I think that's a pretty big deal. But otherwise, there was a report uh, yesterday the February USDA, they talk about the ending stocks and things like that, and they talk about, you know, orange juice and a whole bunch of other things. But typically what we're concerned about is acres of production, ending stocks, as well as total production and demand and supply and those types of things like that. So I guess those big, like, kind of three reports, uh, you know, could be an area, a point of opportunity, or a point to avoid. It all, it all depends, right? Yeah, but that, that's one reason I write the market trends for the grain farmers, and I write them. I write two special reports. I write fourteen times a year, and I write two special reports. Yeah. The day after March thirtieth, and the day after June thirtieth, and which is usually Canada Day, so it gets pushed back. But uh, because market action is so vol- volatile at that time. But keep in mind, we're talking futures. Mm-hmm. Okay, Janet Yellen today, the U.S. Federal Reserve chairman, said that, well, she, you know, the U.S. economy's not doing quite as good as she thought, and so maybe she won't have to raise interest rates. And then somebody asked her, well, should you cut them? She said, I don't think I'll have to. Well, I didn't know what it did. Well, maybe I can find out right now. But I didn't know what that did to the U.S. dollar. I assumed it was bearish for the U.S. dollar. But what I'm trying to say is, in 2015 and 2016, it's not about the features. It's about the Canadian dollar. Yeah. It is so low now. It is creating opportunity uh, for Ontario farmers that our American friends don't have. Because if you had a par dollar now, you got a 360 futures price, you probably have a sub-$3 cash price in Ontario. 
Uh, people wouldn't be too happy about that, you know, including me. But that's life on the trail. I've seen it before. I just don't want to see it in 2016. So, you know, pricing, these are things we can manage, but ultimately... To a certain extent, agricultural economics and production do go hand in hand. And so I want to get your take from an ag economics perspective on, uh, in terms of things on your farm from a crop production standpoint that, you know, have, have been good return on investments. That are things that are slam dunks for you. That you looking back on your 30, you know, plus year career in farming – that have been solid, you know, solid choices. Sometimes I make my agronomist. Uh, um, well, let's be blunt, Phil. You piss off a lot of agronomists on Twitter. <laughs> so. Well, you know, they might take it that way, but they shouldn't. Yeah. They shouldn't um, because I look at things through an agricultural economic lens. Sure. And I always tell my agronomist friends, fertility is about eighth on the list. Yeah. And it is. And, of course, if you tell somebody that's talking about fertility all the time, <laughs> it's not too good. I always say, well, fertility aren't doing my soybeans any good if they're two feet underwater. Right. And so where I'm from, in chatham Ken, drainage is about the first five on the list. Okay, yeah. So I spend an inordinate amount of my capital on drainage. I'm constantly improving it. And... You know the drainage system we have in Chatham-Kent and Essex and places like that. It's thorough. And it's, it's something that has to be done in order for me to survive. And uh, so that is the key factor with regard to um, the money that I spent that, that has made me a lot, of, uh, a lot of return over the years. Now, there's other things, like I switched to... No-till production in, 2000, in 1996. That was partly because I farmed by myself. Sure. And, and in 2016, I don't see any reason to change now. I really don't. I can see all the cover crop uh, um, ideas that are out there on Twitter or other places. And I, I, I see tillage, and I've done some of that myself. But with regard to no-till, for me, that has really worked out well. And it enhanced yields as well. But drainage is very important as well. But fertility, I always look at that as that's just a default to me. Fair you, enough. You just you just do due diligence, that's what you do. But let's not uh let's not uh you know, if the crop's underwater, that's a problem. You know. So then in terms of uh seeds and seed traits and seed technology am i right to characterize you as someone that uh that that will bin run or has been run or continues to bin run soybeans oh of course and wheat yeah of course so and i'm sure you've heard and and i know you're looking at that from an agricultural economics lens so well, well is there another lens no so i guess my i'm sure you've heard the counter arguments right of listen if you don't uh, if you don't invest in certified seed then you're not investing in new traits and new genetics and and so give me the system that would meet all of your needs right that would allow you to bin run seed with for the economic advantage but would also recognize that yeah people have to breed and and research and come up with new traits so what's the system is it a checkoff dollar like how would how, how do you address that to me it's easy yeah 
just reduce your prices. Just an agricultural economic question. All they have to do is reduce their prices and increase their volume sold. There is a difference, though, when technology use agreements came in. Sure. That was a game changer because essentially what that did is, is that made it illegal to do um, keep your own seed for that type of thing. And that's just flat out illegal. You shouldn't do that. Right. And that changed the game. And, and so uh, over a period of time, uh, that has really changed um, the marketplace. And, you know, to me, a trait is only, I only look at it as a way to segment a market to increase price. That's the way I look at it. Roundup Ready corn, for instance. Where I'm from, we have all kinds of Roundup Ready weeds. Well, you know what's uh, like. You're a weed expert. So we spray them conventionally because we have to. But the, you know, the, we're not able to buy the same hybrid without the Roundup Ready gene. Okay? So the marketplace has changed, and it's become more difficult. And um, to me, more complex. And, you know, from my perspective as a farmer, it's all about putting more money in my pocket and more into the economy and not back into the agricultural, the big agricultural companies. And um, uh, that's the way I've always saw it. It's interesting because I grew 650 acres of non-GMO soybeans last year. Mm -hmm. That's what I did 30 years ago. Okay? And I've never believed in the, uh, like, herbicide tolerance. You know, my gosh, what we got now? What is it? Uh, Roundup Ready Dicamba soybeans. And we spray around tomatoes in Chatham, Kent. You know, I've done it for years, sprayed dicamba around tomatoes. I don't need that, okay? I don't need that. I don't need, you know, I just don't need that. But people that do, they do, I guess, you know, and that's fine. But I just don't need that. To me, for instance, with regard to genetic modification, I, I grow lots of it. You know, I grow BT corn. I have for years. I like it. You know, I really like it. You know, it gives me higher, 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 higher yields. And, and, but there's many facets of the system that we have now that aren't working. So is that the point of differentiation? Like for, for soybeans and wheat, I, be, I assume your premise is that I can, I can grow that stuff and produce seed, seed stock just as well myself. Thank you very much. That, that, that will yield fine. On the corn end, I mean, I, I recognize that you know, there's corn hybrids, but there's no reason why you couldn't become your own corn breeder, make your own your own hybrid effectively. I don't think I could ever keep up with the productivity gains. Okay, so in other so words, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, and so in in that particular market segment, you know the the economics, I guess, are there to yeah. to pay for that. There's okay. no question with corn productivity, as yeah. you know. Yeah, with the yields we're getting in Ontario last year, I thought our average yield was one seventy eight. Yeah, it was provincially close. It was, 170. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, it's unheard of. What is it in soybeans? 44. Yeah. You know, I got 60 bushel beans 30 years ago with my eyes closed. Right? Yeah. You know, like all the hype regarding some of these traits, we should be getting 95 bushel beans with our eyes closed, and we're not. That's not to say it's bad. It's not no. bad. 
It just is what it is. But I guess your, to go back to your point, to kind of take your side a little bit on the ag economic standpoint, if wheat and soybeans were, were increasing in productivity at the same rate corn was, there's a good chance that you'd be, you'd be buying new certified seed in that end too. If it really was... If it was hybridized? Yes. Yeah, I guess... Like corn? Fair enough. You know, I mean, you look at the what has been one of the single most um, advantages, economic advantages to agricultural research in the last sixty years. Hybrid corn is one of the biggest mm-hmm. ones, and and if you ever did that to soybeans, that would be the same thing. But when you have a tet, uh, kind of a tectonic shift like that in productivity, you also have a shift in the economics. And, you know, how do we deal with that? Like in Ontario right now, we're tapped out for domestic corn demand. We've got ethanol plants running, but their subsidy ends on December 31st, 2016. If we didn't have the ethanol component in our province, four out of ten cobs of corn would have to go in the feed market. What would basis be? So it wouldn't be too good. Okay, so when we're talking about productivity gains, that's a very good thing. Generally, it's how we survive as farmers. Yep. Generally, it is. Yep. But when you, when, you add, when you add the complexity to the market through technology use agreements and things like that, it, makes, it, you know, it changes it a bit. And, and because our competitors in Brazil and Argentina don't have to deal with that, but that's okay. Well, they're laughing at you, mm-hmm. Okay. So to me, with regard to some of these issues, I just look at it through an agricultural economic lens. Typically what I think about is market structure, okay? Market structure, you have a free market, you have monopolistic competition, you have oligopolies, and you have monopolies. Ontario Hydro used to be monopoly. Okay, well, you have oligopolies, and we know who they are. We have them in agriculture. And we call them big ag. And what do they do? You know, they don't fix prices because that's illegal. But there's a reason that corn hybrid prices are so high, you know. And, and you know, it has, to do with the, it has to do with the structure of the market. And, you know, a good one now is food prices, okay? Food prices are higher. Oh, the Canadian dollar is so low. That's why food prices are higher. That's true. But it's also true that the oligopolies that control the grocery business, they control the prices to some extent. And they make sure they don't go down, but they make sure they get theirs. That's not illegal. That's perfectly legal in our society. So when you get back to the farm level, let's just be a little bit honest with what's going on here. See, I just look at it. I don't look at BT corn or, or what else they got now, enlist soybeans and all the traits that I could buy with my corn that kill these bugs that I've never seen before, but they must be there. Like, to me, I look at it as the segmentation of the market to increase the price. Well, that's fine. There's nothing illegal about that. You know, and, and, but that's the market I'm, I'm operating in, and so, so make my decision based on what I know. It's just a little bit more, uh, uh, there's a little bit more to it than just growing better corn. I want to go back to soybeans for a little bit uh, and around weed control because I know you're doing uh, non-GMO soys. Are you? How close are you to being at that point, though? Because now to manage some of these weed problems that you have clearly takes a little bit extra time, a little bit extra mo- money to, to accomplish. 
I don't think it takes. I think it takes less money, a lot less. Okay, so the fact that you're seeing, so uh, let me characterize this correctly. The fact that you're seeing some some problem weeds like the giant rag weed, like Canada flea that's just that's your reality has been that you've just had to deal with that through different product selection, and it hasn't cost you anymore. Is that is that what's going on? No. Okay. It's cost me more. Okay. But it's still cheaper. Okay. Than buying seed for hundred dollars a bag. Oh, I know. You know. So that's. I guess that's what I was asking. Is like, how close are you? Are you? Are you still miles away from that point where the cost, the added cost to control the weeds that you have in your system, are is not much different than than a new trait that would allow you to use another herbicide. I guess. So. Now don't don't give me that that Kool Aid. I don't drink that Kool Aid. Like, like, I mean... Uh, well, it was no, it was no Kool-Aid, <laughs> Phil. It was what I was trying to get at is you still feel like there's plenty of wiggle room left to, to like, even if you had to increase weed control costs in your current system, you're still dollars ahead than, than going... Oh, no question. Okay, that, that's even, all I was getting it's at. It's not even close. But, yeah. but this thing about, you know, Roundup Ready is a good example. I grow all kinds of Roundup Ready corn, and I spray it conventionally. In right. Chatham, Kent... You cannot control weeds with Roundup. Yeah. You know that. Yeah, no. And it spreads by pollen. I was just kind of getting a sense from where you're at. Like, for me, I grow non-GMO soybeans as well, and I, <laughs> and I figure, like, I, you know, I can still, I could spend up to $80 an acre and still be dollars ahead for, for me. So I was just kind of curious as to what level you were at but, there and your struggle yeah. against those weeds. Well, I, I find it a struggle, and the reason I find it a struggle is because, you know, it's because of our friends that, you know, there was, I was told that, you know, all you'll ever have to use is Roundup, mm-hmm. you know, and, and um, you know, now I've got all kinds of problems because of that. Right. You know, and it's raising our costs. Let's be honest about that. Mm-hmm. Now, having said all that, I am who I am, and I'm nobody. Right. You know, like there, some of the new products that are coming out would have a a great place in our agronomic toolbox. There are many people uh, that have particular challenges, whether they're agronomic or something else, that this will work for them. This will work for them. And and that's just fine with me. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's uh, it's different options for different people. Like there's, I, I'm sure there's a level of convenience with the, the new system, right? Um, that might be attractive to someone that has to cover a large amount of acreage, right? There's just, there's, and I know you're looking up and kind yeah, of questioning I would, I that. Would, but yeah, because I, I, I just see that as, a, you know, a negative economic return. Fair enough. But you can, uh, yes, because you're looking at it at economics all the time, but surely you can think on an emotional level why someone would, Right. It's no different than why that technology was adopted. Roundup Ready was adopted in the first place. One, it was extremely effective, and it made it made the process of killing weeds easier. So, on a, I'm not talking economics, though. I'm talking just as a as a as a as as, a, as people that kind of go well, a path guess, of least I resistance. I guess I never looked at it that way because I, I looked at the astronomical cost of the seed. And it was about the last thing I'd want to do. Fair enough. You know, I used to say, I don't say this anymore, but people would say, do you grow Roundup Ready? And I, I you know, hell would freeze over before I grow them. That's what I used to say. Mm-hmm. But I don't say that anymore because um, maybe there'll come a day, you know. 
because I've got problems in my field, and they're increasing. Thank you very much for all the all the pollen blowing in from wherever it's blowing. That maybe I'll have to uh, employ a uh, uh, what do you call it now? Roundup Ready Enlist soybean to kill um, uh, glyphosate resistant uh, Palmer amaranth sure. that might arrive on a combine. You know, I've even heard it's already here in Walpole Island. You know, you hear these things. But um, so I don't say that anymore. To me, like I've heard from dairy farmers that make their money in the barn and they just want to go spray their soybeans. They don't want to be like me adding 240 ester and what else do I add to a mix in the, you know, to kill giant ragweed. And um, so my way is not necessarily the right way. It's just what I'm doing. I have micro problems and I deal with micro solutions where I am. And uh, but but clearly, from my standpoint, when I look at something, I look at the market structure that the market's operating in, and the farm inputs market is no different than corn and soybeans. It is what it is. The big difference is, is they can control. The oligopolies can control what's produced. Well, you know what corn and soybeans is like. We got 178 bushels per acre in Ontario. We got corn everywhere. We got corn so many places. We're putting it in bags in eastern Ontario. It's a different market structure. I can't get beyond that, you know. Fair enough. Yeah. No, I was just trying to understand the mindset because I think in your, like, again, and you've been, you've been clear on this point, you're always looking at things through an economic lens. I guess I, I know there's... Agricultural mul- economic lens. Yes. I guess I didn't say that because yeah. uh, time has marched on. But, but I can totally appreciate, like, it's no different than any other things in the marketplace. Someone might say, why do I need a $500 iPhone? How is that? You know, what, what is the investment on, on that, right? And some, you know, and I, so I, I know that's a business uh, of farming, but, you know, we make choices sometimes due to convenience, due to other factors that maybe don't make agricultural economic sense. And that's just... Well, I, I guess I guess part of it is where I came from. Uh, you know, um, capital availability was so scarce at the beginning that we couldn't make those choices. Mm-hmm. You know, and I have heard people say that farmers spend money, you know, on these things, uh, and and that's to each its own. But I guess I just never looked at it that way. So, um, one one thing before I move on. Uh, water hemp said well at the island, not uh, Palmer amaranth. To the best of my knowledge, still not, uh, still not a sighting of Palmer amaranth, and let's hope not, right? Oh, for sure. Um, I, maybe you and I chatted. Maybe you didn't. You and I didn't. I heard there was some in Michigan that was transported on a combine bought from the south. Yeah, I mean that occurred with water hemp about probably thirteen years ago. There was an instance of that, but. Uh, you know, to date, Palmer Amaranth, we don't have any in the province. So, Walpole Island's right on the edge, right? Right. But Walpole Island, they have water hemp for sure there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've been super gracious with your time, and I want to finish off with a, with a few things. Um, kind of a, a what say you, Phil, type of uh, a, a list of questions that I have. So, I know you're a big basketball fan, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. So, I want two things I want to touch on there. So clearly you played basketball in the past. At what level did you play basketball? <laughs> I well, that's a good question. I love the game. Yeah. Okay. I have my own piston commentary on a radio station in Chatham for crying out loud. I know more about basketball than I know anything else. 
believe it or not. Yep. I watch every Raptor game, every one, and every Piston game. I watch them both. I was at the Raptors and Piston game the other night in Detroit with a lot of Toronto people. And, um, but I still don't know how to shoot straight. Okay, I had no instruction. I went to a rural school. I tried as hard as I could. Basketball is part of our culture in, in the Great Southwest. Uh, at that time, we had some of the best players in Canada. Um, and uh, it was just part of our culture. And uh, we have uh, a large percentage of, um, of uh, black farmers in our area. And so we always had a large percentage of black players on our teams. And uh, so we, we played all the time. But I came to Guelph, and I, I think, you know, there might have been <laughs> one fleeting moment where I may have been able to make the varsity team, but I had to work too much on academics. But who knows, maybe I'll get in the NBA again some, someday, but it's unlikely. But what is it about... Uh, so have there been anything that you've taken from a sport that have been transferable to... To business and to life? I, I really don't think so. You can make an analogy. Like, I have some of my favorite players. Like, we have a saying. Like, one of my favorite players was a guard for the Detroit Pistons, and his name was Isaiah Thomas. And what the guys in the Southwest always says is he left it on the court. And if you, you may or may not recall game six of the 1988 NBA Finals, where he basically broke his ankle and scored 35 points to finish the game almost on crutches, and we lost that game and went on to lose the series. But he's somebody that that um, was he's a Hall of Fame guard, one of the top 50 in the NBA, and he had a heart of a lion. And I'm not saying I'm like him because I'm not, but he left everything on the court. He had nothing left at the end of the day. And I like to try to, to do that from a management standpoint on my farm and in everything that I do. As you know, I do a lot of writing and, and speaking. And to me, there's no substitute for excellence at any level. Okay? So then what's your, uh, what's your walkout music? My walkout music? Yeah. You're playing for the Detroit Pistons. They're introducing you. What, what song's playing? <clears throat> well... Believe it or not, back in the day, it was Earth, Wind, and Fire when we used to warm up. That's what we used to warm up to. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I don't think it's Rocky or anything like that. <laughs> Probably more these days is some of uh, Adele's latest hits, talking about days gone by. Be quite mellow, but nonetheless. <laughs> Pretty dramatic. Um, so first tractor you ever drove? First tractor I ever drove was a Ford Jubilee. Okay. And uh, you started those with a button, I think, on the transmission. And your favorite tractor that you've owned or bought? Well, the favorite one is, I've thought about this, and uh, it's the one I have now. It's a John Deere 6125R. Okay, well, my goodness, whether it's or not to like. But basically, it's software on wheels, right? So that's a good thing as long as it works. And so far, so good? So far, it's worked fine because it has automatic steering and all these things where I can map and do things, and I embrace that. I embrace that technology, and it's wonderful that way. So is the main benefit of that been fatigue, like uh, auto steer, that kind of, kind of stuff? Like you mentioned, you're still farming by yourself. That's right. It has helped that. Like I've been able to substitute, uh, techno- substitute um, technology. I use the technology to keep me farming the way I do. 
And I do more now in an hour than I did 30 years ago. But I'm not quite like I was 30 years ago, right? And, uh, and uh, fatigue's a big factor. I have automatic steering on my combines and my other tractors, too. I've got a Trimble unit and a John Deere unit on this John Deere tractor. But I think it's wonderful. Uh, this question I asked is kind of like a farming mulligan. Like if you had to, to take a do-over, you know, uh, drop the ball and swing again, what, what is it in your career that you would take a mulligan on? Well, I, I think it has to do with those high interest rates. You know, I, th- I think it's obvious now that I should have taken, uh, if I so choose, not that I need more work to do, but it's obvious that with the low interest rate environment that we've lived through in the last 10 years, there was opportunities for there that I didn't take. And one of the reasons I didn't take them was because of what happened 20 years before that. That's always lived with me. And when I talk to students, I talk to students at the University of Guelph at Ridgetown earlier this year. I do it every year. And I say, don't be like that. Don't be captive to those types of things. And I've talked to people my vintage, and we both we all laugh because we all are captive to it. And so I think there were some opportunities that were missed because of that. It wasn't like I was just not doing anything, <laughs> though. I was doing quite a few things. Uh, but it's pretty obvious you could have bought more land at cheaper interest rates, and it's just taken off now. But And I, I don't mean that from a standpoint of making flipping land in the future. I, 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 you know, we were, you see, I wrote a column quite a few, it was three years ago, and it was the five tips I could give young farmers. And when I got to Ridgetown, they asked me to recite what the five tips were, and I got to about four, and I couldn't remember. But what I did say was is that you're going to borrow a lot of money. You're going to be in a debt for a long time. And, and then you get to be my age, and you finally get out, or at least you hope to. And uh, so, you know, so I can say that maybe I missed some opportunities, but maybe on the other hand it was part of the plan because I farm by myself. And that's a reality that I think about all the time. My brother does give me a little bit of hand uh, drawing grain in the fall. But when you farm by yourself, your planning horizon is a little bit different than if you have a big family. And if you think about the families that farm successfully in Ontario and across Canada, a lot of them are big families together. That, that, and, of course, that's a big challenge too. But I farm by myself. So if I don't do it, it don't get done. And so what is your horizon? When, you know, how long do you think you'll get I'd like to it? plant eight more crops. I would be 65. And I don't know whether I will be able to get there because my family's had, um, my wife was stricken with cancer two years ago. And thank God she's in remission and doing well. But when you go through that, you know, it shows you how fragile life can be. So... I would like to plant eight more crops, and I'd even like to plant after that, but I don't think that it's wise for me to do that. And um, so it's interesting when I say things like this. I had an editor say to me one one day, uh, sounds like you're going to get ready to quit, and then I had another guy say to me, another analyst say to me out in the East Coast, I heard you sold all your land. <laughs> so, so anytime, so from then on, when I write something in the newspaper or something like that, I never really talk about that because things get uh, skewed away. But eight more crops is what I like to plant. I don't think after the age of 65 it's wise for me to continue just from a safety standpoint. 
but mind you, things are changing. I can hire people in to do things now more, and I have a greater equity position than I ever did before. So that makes it easier. But I do think that it's time to uh, do something else at that point. And I might not get there either. Right. And I'm very aware of that. And I'm preparing for the day when, if I get there, that's good. You know, maybe you and I'll be sitting here in eight years talking about the old days, but maybe we won't. So, I mean, you, you have to think about that. So what kind of daily routines do you have, though, that, you know, farming is is a business that is hectic at time where there can be lots going on, lots of stress? What what Do you have any routines that keep you focused and, and keep you healthy, right? You've mentioned safety, health. Yeah. Um, well, my work is more seasonal than some farmers, of mm-hmm. course, because I don't have any livestock. Um, but... Um, I get up every morning, and I, I make my breakfast, and the website that loads is the two piston websites for the Detroit News and Detroit Pistons. I've done that forever. Back when I was here, I had to wait till Monday, Monday Globe and Mail to find out the score on Friday. But I read what the Pistons are doing, and then I read all the papers, and, and I post things that I like and that I read on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And that I think are are really interesting. I also post the prices, and I'll comment on other users in a list I have in agricultural commodities on Twitter. And sometimes that gets going, and I have to answer things. Uh, I write a lot of articles, so and I have a schedule. I've written a agricultural economic column every Thursday for the last thirty years. So when I started writing that, I was fairly young, and I did it by longhand. And now I use voice recognition software. That's how things change. So I'm always writing articles, and that never stops, even during the summer. I just keep doing it. And I have a regimen for how much time goes into each one of those based on how much I'm paid for them and things of that nature. And then in the winter time, usually in the winter, though I spoke in the summer last year in Quebec, I do have some speaking engagements uh, that I prepare for. Now, in the from April to November, though, 6 o'clock is usually out the door by 7, and I'm doing all kinds of tasks, and I do everything, everything. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's every facet of management that I have to do, whether it's tearing a tractor apart or taking responsibility for having it torn apart or rolling up the tarp on the wagon or anything else, is that, that I have that responsibility from from you know, kind of April to November. And then I do all the writing at the same time as well. And I do check the Piston webpage all during the summer. And, uh, and uh, you know, the radio station asked me to do a commentary on on them last year, and that's what I'm doing. And uh, But I don't play basketball anymore. No. I hung the sneakers up at age 45 because it's just stupid to play now. You get in trouble. It's not bad. It's tough. Uh, I'm I'm in my 40s now, and it's uh, it's uh, tougher to compete with the 20 uh, 20 year olds. You can beat them sure. two times out of ten, but when you get to my age, it's not even worth that. You're smarter, but you're also significantly slower than they are. That's is right. What I found. That's right. Um, I want to follow up on two one, two things. Uh, voice rec- recognition software. What do you use? Dragon Dictation yeah. for the Mac. Very cool. Um, lastly. You're doing bunch, a bunch of things. Where can people uh, where can people find you? The best the best place to find me is on Twitter, 
because I find Twitter indispensable. And there's been two things in my career with regard to the last 10 years with regard to computers and things that's really changed my world. One's dragging dictation for the Mac. That has increased my writing, my typing efficiency, writing efficiency 800%. I can type fast, but when you don't have to type anymore, you can really increase your your um, writing efficiency. So then you can write more, right? And you know, yeah, yeah. you know the whole thing. Yeah. You could write more, so you get paid more because you write more articles. You know that whole how that would work. And the other is Twitter. Twitter's indispensable to me. Uh, I've made great friends on Twitter. Um, um, the knowledge I've gained from it's incredible. Uh, the invitations I've got for speaking, speaking, uh, speaking uh, in different parts of Canada have been uh, very nice. But if you want to get hold of me, get on Twitter. I'm at Agrodome. And, of course, you can always go to www.philipshaw.ca, and I've had that website for, I don't know, since the Internet was born. And then when are you uh, talking Pistons basketball? Every Monday you can go to uh, uh, blackburnnews.com and do a Google search, Philip Shaw Pistons comment, and I'm sure you'll find it. But not a lot of people are interested in that. Just me and a few farmers down in southwestern Ontario. I think that's the whole country, though. Wasn't (laughs) wasn't there, like, a stat that... Like basketball is by far the least watched sport. Well, if you look at a Leaf crowd versus a Raptors crowd, what do you see? You know, the Raptors crowd is younger, it's multicultural, and it's full. The Leaf crowd is an older crowd, and it's full too. And I would be remiss to say that basketball is taking over hockey in Ontario because it isn't. But there's a segment of the population in the greater Toronto area that um, is more attuned to the Raptors than the the Raptors and the than the Leafs, and of course, the Raptors are going to challenge Cleveland for the East title this year, and the Leafs aren't going to make playoffs. So I don't think so. But I don't follow hockey too much. I do watch it in the playoffs. You're not heading to the All Star game. No, I'm not headed to the All Star game in Toronto. Uh, the All Star game has uh, been in Detroit a few times, okay. and uh, I didn't go then either. Um, but the All-Star game in the NBA is probably worse than the <laughs> NHL All-Star okay. game. Because in the NBA All-Star game, all they do is feel, fool around and they don't play defense. So the score is 182 to 179. Yeah, not a whole lot of... Uh... I don't find it too interesting, but uh, um, you know, I have some favorite basketball analysts. I think NBA on TNT with Shaquille O'Neal and Kenny Smith and... Uh, Charles Barkley is incredibly entertaining and informative. They know what they're they're doing. The best color analyst, I think, is Hubie Brown. He's over eighty now. He's on uh, on the broadcast. He's just he's just great. And who knows? Maybe I'll get that opportunity someday. <laughs> well, I really appreciate the time, Phil. It's been been great. I could talk to you longer. Sure. Um, but well, I just hope you come down to uh, Chatham Kent this year and be able to spot some of those problems that we have basically you're asking me to come and pick weeds is that what you're doing <laughs> i just like showing people like you some of the issues that i have no it's good and i i enjoy that too there's nothing better than that but um now yeah, thanks this has been this has been great and i take this off oh, but, it's certainly uh, been a pleasure Today is here and then
Something real. 